1: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The Kakadu
2: Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So, why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So if you follow us on social media, you know that I was recently at Salt Lake Comic Con Fan X. And since Tracy's schedule was a bit too hectic leading up to her wedding, our friend Brian Young, who was our guest on our live show from New York Super Week last year, was kind enough to sit in as my guest host. Yes. And this, this is going to be the first of two live shows that Brian and I did. And this one focuses on film history in Salt Lake City.
0: I was so glad that he was able to join you because I just did not have room in the schedule (laughs) (laughs) for like, I think it's six hours flights each way from Boston to Salt Lake and, and then the time there, like I really wanted to be able to make it. I just couldn't make the schedule work. So, uh, first Holly and Brian are going to talk about, um, are going to talk about Charlie Chaplin. Heads up, there's going to be a little bit of talk about prostitution towards the end of that first segment. Like, there's no details involved, but a brief mention of a rumor regarding Charlie Chaplin and his time in in Utah. And as we've mentioned before, our live shows often are a little more casual than our work in the studio.
1: Yeah, so sometimes, you know, we may, we make slightly more adult jokes, uh, but we, we tried to keep it clean. Uh, I don't think there's anything that uh, is horrifying for a kid to hear, but uh, you may want to review if you listen with younger history buffs. So let's hop into my chat with Brian about Salt Lake and its surprisingly important place in the history of cinema. Hi, everybody. Oh, my gosh, it's so good to see you guys. Uh, so this is Stuff You Missed in History Class, our first Salt Lake live show. Indeed. And this is this is my first time in Salt Lake. Your city is spectacular. Like, it's gorgeous. There's lots of great walking. You have amazing people. Someone, a um, oh, knitter who lives here and couldn't make the show drop this off at my hotel. It's the tiniest Queen Victoria of all time. It's so spectacular. It even has a tiny red petticoat and her bloomers. Uh, It's just the absolute best. So um, I have enjoyed myself already so much. How many of you do we get to see again tomorrow? I love it. I love it. Uh, You probably know Brian Young. He's local. Nobody knows me. Well, they do now. Tell us who you are, Pumpkin.
3: Um, so my name is Brian Young, and i if you're at the convention, you've probably seen me on Star Wars panels because I write for StarWars.com and Star Wars Insider. And I do a podcast called Full of Sith that we've had Holly on, what, three or four times now, right?
1: I think thrice.
3: Yeah. Well, including yesterday. Four times. Um, Math
1: is real hard. I can't you know. always keep up.
3: And uh, I'm also a giant history nerd, and I wrote a book called A Children's Illustrated History of Presidential Assassination. Um, and so because of that book, Holly and Tracy liked it, and they asked me to come on the show to do their live show in New York, um, which was a lot of fun. And then they were like, well, we're going to do a show in Salt Lake, and Tracy can't make it.
1: Yeah, uh, Tracy is now in the home stretch to getting married. She has just a couple more weeks, and we did a show in Chicago last week, so she's like, I, I can't do back-to-back. Uh, so thankfully, we have Brian as our pinch hitter. I'm so lucky that we have you in the wings.
3: I, I, that's flattering.
1: <laughs> to me, I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Uh, so hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry.
3: And I'm Brian Young.
1: Uh, and what you guys may or may not know is that your city is really tightly linked to some pretty key moments in early cinema. I didn't even realize it until Brian mentioned it and we started looking at it. Like, there are some very important things that came directly out of Salt Lake, and... It's one of those things, if you talk about Hollywood towns or, like, movie towns, you think of New York and you think of L.A. and you maybe think of Vancouver, and lately Atlanta's been getting some action, although based on some politics going on, Disney may not be there filming anymore for Marvel, uh, but but Salt Lake doesn't usually come up. But historically, it's got some really pivotal moments, and those are what we're going to talk about today. Indeed. Indeed. So we're going to kick off uh, with the fabulous and delicious, one of my favorites, Charlie Chaplin.
3: He's one of my favorites, too, and, and uh, Charlie Chaplin was, there's no doubt about it, the biggest movie star in the world when he made his way to Salt Lake City. But um, back when he made his career, it was as a one real star, right? So movies were 10 or 12 minutes long, and they were just full of gags, and that was that. And he set out to make his first feature film. Um, so So... He would star as the Tramp, and they were the most beloved films anywhere. And I think to put that in context, like imagine Mickey Mouse now, like times a hundred, and that's sort of Charlie Chaplin back in the nineteen teens and twenties.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of a current actual human actor. Not that I don't love my Mickey, but uh, who is even comparable? And it's actually pretty hard to come up with somebody because remember there weren't films coming out, you know, a dozen a week. It was like this was your entertainment, and it was a pretty shy load in terms of what there really was to go see at the cinema. And he was one of the few people that was just cranking them out and entertaining people constantly. So he was ubiquitous, and he was synonymous with entertainment.
3: And it was a global phenomenon, too. I mean, because the films were silent, you didn't need language to to communicate, so they could just send these prints off all over the world, and yeah. he became the biggest star in the world. So... Um, but in 1918, he'd suffered a series of personal tragedies. He'd been pushed into a marriage with a 17-year-old bride. Uh, they lost a child, and he'd hit what he considered a creative slump. And he opted to return to filmmaking with his first feature-length film. And by feature length, this was about, this was a 60 or 70 minute film, which is really short by our standards today, but back then this was as long as films went.
1: Yeah, considering that 12 minutes was a standard longish, an hour is suddenly, an hour seven, an hour to 70 minutes is suddenly a huge and ambitious undertaking.
3: So, the, the film he decided he was going to work on was called The Kid. And The Kid is, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just, it's touching, it's fantastic, it's hilarious. And it was a very long, slow shoot because Chaplin was a perfectionist. Um, one thing I found interesting in, in researching this episode is that um, for every 53 minutes of film that Charlie Chaplin rolled, only one minute made it into the final picture.
1: Yeah, so if you do the math on that, thousands of minutes. Uh, yeah. It's a lot for somebody to take on. Like I said, ambitious. He was not not shy about jumping into the deep
3: end. So this, this young wife of his, uh, her name was Mildred Harris, um, by the time production was winding down, uh, she wanted a divorce. And as people who want divorces, uh, they also want money and things in that separation. And so instead of... Uh, Staying to have the lawyers take the film from them because it could be declared a marital asset. He got his editor, his cinematographer, packed 500 rolls of this film into coffee cans and drove straight to Salt Lake City.
1: Uh, And in this haven of Salt Lake uh, at the Hotel Utah, which is now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building, something a lot of you probably drive or walk by all the time, uh... Chaplin, who was in disguise, he was completely on the DL trying to hide out, was editing this film. And we cannot stress enough, and I'll have Brian speak to it a little bit more in a second, how incredibly risky and dangerous this was. You may immediately think, oh, because he's hiding from a, a legal divorce settlement. No, no, this was physically very risky. Uh, the nitrate film stock that they were using was super-duper flammable. And it was not allowed in public buildings. Literally, like a tiny spark would have sent that hotel up in flames,
3: yeah, um, film today when I mean we have digital film now, but even five ten years ago, and in still some places when you see seventy millimeter film that 's all a like a plastic uh, or a nylon film that they use its it's a safety film, but back then it was it was ready to go off at a moment 's notice, and i if you listen to the show, you know all about theater fires
1: yeah we've had a a number of those featured as topics and they go poorly. Uh,
3: <laughs> and, and this is an age where everyone smoked too. So he's at the Hotel Utah uh, with 500 rolls of this film uh, ready to go up in a moment's notice. It's quite amazing we still have that building today
1: well and it's it's one of those things that's super risky from his point of view of course it puts himself in an incredibly dangerous position it's also kind of a jerk move because he put every single person in that hotel in danger as well so while i'm a big Chaplin fan and i love him and his work and i'm glad the film got made that wasn't very nice this is very unsafe uh and he actually gave an interview in the August 9th, 1920 edition of the Deseret News. And he showed up dressed in green silk pajamas, because what's more zazzy and fabulous than that? Uh, and he told reporters that uh, lawyers could be more mercenary than one's wife, and that Los Angeles was such a hotbed of the profession and newspapermen that he came to Salt Lake to concentrate on his work. So Salt Lake offered him a haven both from his legal woes and just creatively, where he didn't have to deal with all of the pressures of the industry.
3: Um, so the interesting thing about it is it, he he worked. He went to work, and he got together a version of the film and the first audience in the world that saw the first sneak preview of The Kid, which is a, an incredibly important motion picture, um, For a lot of reasons, even the kid himself, I don't know if you guys know this, is Jackie Coogan, who was Uncle Fester on Adam's family as like a six-year-old kid. Um, The first screening was in Salt Lake City. So the first time anyone ever saw this hugely important moment in cinema history was was right down the street here uh, at a theater on Main Street.
1: And eventually, of course, he did leave Salt Lake. He did not make this his permanent residence. And he headed back to, he headed to New York at that point. He got his divorce settled finally. And then The Kid was released in 1921. So that was three years that he was really working on it. And now, of course, as Brian said, it's one of the most important films ever made. It's like if you take a cinema class, you're watching The Kid, the end. Uh, and it's a wonderful film. And it was cut and screened right here in Salt Lake.
3: Um, for those who are interested, I mean, they did sort of memorialize this, uh, exodus of his movie in, uh, of cutting this movie in Richard Attenborough's Chaplin starring Robert Downey Jr., which it doesn't look anything like Salt Lake City but they got the facts of that part of the divorce and things straight in the film, and it's a fantastic film you should check out if you, if you haven't.
1: So to wrap up with the Chaplin segment, you want to talk about prostitutes for a second, Brian?
3: <laughs> I do! <laughs> <laughs> so it's been reported to me and I couldn't find any first-hand sources um, but Uh, I I couldn't find any first-hand evidence of it, but people had told me as they'd been researching this for their own film history that that Charlie Chaplin was convinced that the prostitutes in Salt Lake City were the best in the country. Um, So we have that going for
1: us. Right? That's a claim to shame.
0: Well, this idea that Chaplin was so brazen as to take all this flammable film into a hotel with him is kind of scary to think
1: about. That was a little dangerous. Yeah, it was a very dangerous move, but it's really cool to know that the final cut of The Kid was really born and screened in Salt Lake City for the first time. And that certainly puts the city on the map in terms of film history. Before we get to this next check of
0: film history associated with Salt Lake, we're going to pause for a word from a sponsor.
2: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
1: Next up, we are going to hop into the Marx Brothers and how they owed some of their, really their greatest success to the time that they spent in Salt Lake. We will also talk about Edgar Rice Burroughs and his time in Utah and how it shaped
0: his writing. You may be surprised to hear that his work in Salt Lake really had nothing to do with writing,
1: though. And now, moving on to the next thing, another prolific and important uh, film creator, although this is multiple creators, we're going to talk a little bit about the Marx Brothers.
3: Yeah, the Marx Brothers, uh, everybody knows the Marx Brothers, and and Duck Soup is one of those movies that uh, you hear it's on the top of, uh, of all of the best comedy lists, and it's one of the funniest movies of all time, but when it came out, it was a flop. Uh, people didn't like it, and, uh, they were, they were in a contract with, uh, Paramount Pictures for, uh, Duck Soup, and they were not pleased with how that went out. So, in 1933, uh, they were released from their contract, and, uh, they didn't know what they were gonna do next.
1: Uh, yeah, I always have to laugh, because if you ask any film student like what their favorites are, Duck Soup always pops up. Like It's kind of like the hipster cool thing. I love Duck Soup. It's fantastic. It changed my life. But it, at the time, people were like, wah, wah, Duck Soup, not so much. Uh, but thankfully, even though they were dropped, they ended up getting picked up by MGM, and producer Irving Thalberg was working with them. And he insisted that the problem with the material was that it didn't have a story. It was just gags after gags after gags with no real through line. And so, to help them refine the uh, the storyline and the jokes in their next film, which was *A Night at the Opera*, which is also fantastic, Falberg uh, decided that they needed to go on a tour and actually workshop their material with live audiences in cities to actually write good, strong jokes. And their first stop was right here in Salt Lake.
3: So the the Marx Brothers they they arrived in Salt Lake, some by plane because they were enthusiasts that way, and others by rail um they came to the orpheum theater the orpheum theater is uh now sort of an abandoned husk of a building uh that was the the utah theater on main street um and this was this old movie palace that could fit 1200 people at a time um and this served as their home for uh, a full week in the uh, in april of 1935 and they performed at least four shows a day to sold out crowds um, the tickets at this time, so they were charging tickets to do this refining act as well. So it wasn't just like, hey, go out and fix the script. It's like, hey, go make people pay you to fix the script. Um, tickets were $0.40 cents for a matinee, $0.55 cents for evening shows, and kids got in for a dime.
1: Well, somebody's got to pay for their hotel and their travel. and yeah. You can't just workshop well, for free.
3: It wasn't just the Marx Brothers either. I think one of the, the most fascinating parts about it is they brought a cast of 40
1: yeah, it was like, I mean, you were getting your money's worth. It wasn't like when you go to open mic night and you watch people really clunk it up for a while trying to figure out where their voices and where their jokes are. I mean, they came with a production. So, you weren't just kind of paying for, to do the work for them. They, they were prepared, but then they could fine tune based on the audience reaction. And they really, really loved this, it turned out. And on April 13th of 1935, Groucho Marx uh, did an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune, and he said, quote, We are kicking ourselves we didn't think of this before. A successful comedy depends almost entirely upon audience reaction. And if anyone tells you he can sit in Hollywood and judge in advance how much Salt Lake or any other city is going to laugh at any given gag, don't hesitate. Put in a hurry call for the psychopathic ward. We are expecting our greatest help from Salt Lake, for it is our first stop, and we will get a definite idea of the script's value. So he really spoke very highly and very openly about how instrumental their time in Salt Lake was for making that script what it ended up being.
3: He didn't mention anything about the prostitutes here, though.
1: Well, you know, we, we don't know. No, no, we don't. He may have also loved the prostitutes, but he didn't say it in any uh, interviews that we know of.
3: So after they, after they were done in, in Salt Lake City, they, they, they packed up and they took it to three other cities. I think Seattle was the next stop. Uh, I forgot to, to write down the other cities, so that's my bad. Um, and, then, and then they ended up filming the movie. The movie came out like later at the end of that year um that's how quickly they worked in Hollywood then it was like here you're in April for the next month you're workshopping this uh screenplay and then come right back we're shooting it and then it's out the door before the end of the year and uh A Night at the Opera became a smash hit for them and and it's regarded as one, you know also one of their best movies of all time and that brought them back into into the public's uh paying graces
1: And the Utah Theater, formerly the Orpheum, where they uh, did these performances, is actually a a current priority for Salt Lake City's redevelopment agency. So hopefully this amazing and historically important theater uh, will kind of get another take at the shine that it once had and a a kind of reemergence of its former glory.
3: Um, There's there's some, uh, hopefully in the show notes you'll be able to to put in we found like the actual like newspaper articles from the day <laughs> and and they've got these giant ads for the show and it's it's just like any other movie poster from the Marx brothers things but uh my favorite part of it is like even the headlines or gags like the headline in the top right of this is uh Groucho Marx demands room far from Harpo <laughs> like they're coming to town and joking around in in Just the most funny ways, even with just the press, like everything was a joke with these guys. That's
1: why I love them. Uh, And next, the next sort of pivotal person we're going to talk about in film history, someone I super love, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. So Edgar Rice Burroughs, born in 1875 in Chicago. He was and is still one of the most popular and prolific writers in the United States. But in the 1900s, he was... Massive. He was hugely popular. He created both Tarzan uh, and the Civil War veteran turned hero story, uh, John Carter from Mars and all of those. Uh, and for many years before he became well-known as a novelist, though, he spent his time traveling around the country and doing some kind of wacky jobs, some of which he did right here.
3: Um, so in 1903, he left Chicago uh, to move west, first to Idaho, then to Oregon to join his brothers in the business of dredging gold. And that didn't pan out very well. Um, that was completely not intentional. You're hurting me, Brian. Um, I told you you'd regret this. I want
1: to keep adoring you, but you're
3: making it hard. So uh, <laughs> he he moved here with his wife, um uh, uh because his brother secured him work as a railroad policeman. Um and so he worked in the gateway area, uh working to roust hobos and drunks and keep them off the freight cars, which was a big problem back in those days. Um, maybe it still is in the gateway area
1: i'm from atlanta your your rail cars seem beautiful and luxurious to me uh i'm like the seats have covers that must mean they don't have a lot of vomiters or piers. like this is i was pretty excited i'm not gonna lie it felt like the lap of luxury uh if you've ever flown over your fair city and the area around it it is probably no surprise that the landscapes of utah uh one served as the shooting locations for John Carter, the 2012 movie, which I think is much maligned. Uh, and it, it's very likely that these same landscapes were really a huge inspiration. To Edgar Rice Burroughs, because if you look at them from above, particularly, it looks like a foreign planet. It looks completely alien and beautiful in a way that's sometimes hard to even process. Like there's so much contrast as you look down, especially like from the snow and the very dark mountains, that it does sort of look like a film set. So no surprise.
3: Well, and it's. Um, I mean, we were we were prepping for this in in your hotel room and like looking at the the, the view right and the salt flats in a time where there weren't a whole lot of buildings in the way of that view. Yeah. Um I mean there's a reason the salt flats are used for just about everything and he was on the west side of town and his view was largely, you know, factories, trains, and that.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and and so uh living in Salt Lake City though, he was not a fan of. <laughs> um, so he 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 explains in his own words, uh I think the uh so he says, We were certainly poverty stricken there, but pride kept us from asking for help. Neither of us knew much about anything that was practical, but we had to do everything ourselves, including the family wash. Not wishing to see Mrs. Burroughs do work of that sort, I volunteered to do it myself. During those months, I half sold my own shoes and did numerous odd jobs. Then a brilliant idea overtook us. We had our household furniture with us and we held an auction, which was a howling success. People paid real money for the junk and we went back to Chicago first class.
1: I sort of love this because I love that at a time when we always think about, of course women did all of the housework, that he had this sort of noble thing where he held his wife in such high esteem that he could not bear to watch her do menial labor. Like there's something very endearing about that. Don't punch your husband. (laughs) I bet he's a delight. I mean, you guys look adorable, sitting here smiling and holding hands. I'm on board. Uh, but yeah, there is something very, very charming and unusual about that. I don't think you would get many quotes of that nature from men living in the nineteen teens that no, no my oh, my poor wife, she shouldn't do that. It just doesn't become her. I will do all the
3: work. <laughs> so, so a lot of the way this this kind of comes into film history, aside from the fact that um he probably got a lot of inspiration from John Carter here. Uh, and then wrote about it and they filmed the movie in the area. Um, is the fact that these were primary, the primary inspiration, uh, or one of the primary inspirations for so many movies through the years. Um, the John Carter books came out, uh, over a hundred years ago. Uh, or they started over a hundred years ago and they sort of influenced everything that serialized science fiction could be over the years. So when John Carter came out and people said, no, this is derivative, we've seen all this before, it's because they – like everyone else stole it from John Carter in the first place. Yeah. And it was one of the first places George Lucas went to um, when he couldn't – uh Get the rights to Flash Gordon, which was itself a knockoff of John Carter. When he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, uh, George Lucas went and read all the John Carter books, the, the Princess of Mars books, and that was one of the building blocks he used for Star Wars.
1: Yeah, and part of that sort of wonderful serialized nature comes not from the, not just from the fact that it's a series of books that actually started being printed in magazines, which was pretty common you know at the time for a long time. I mean, even you know, up into Truman Capote's early career, a lot of writers were released their books as stories that were appearing in regular magazines so it kind of already has that serialized nature which is something so many filmmakers kind of fell in love with and borrowed and that you know played into television when they were doing serialized uh, Saturday matinees etc so I mean I I really can't I don't think we can overstate sort of how important it was
3: no no I think I think uh, I, I think it's I think people often understate it but we're not doing that here
1: Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do. like you said, people complain so much about John Carter having no original ideas, and it kind of suffers from Die Hard syndrome. Or if you go and watch Die Hard now, and it, it feels very like, I've seen all of this, but Die Hard kind of set that tone for all action movies going forward. So it's kind of one of those things where history bites itself in the butt, because <laughs> the thing that came first, just by virtue of not having gotten as much sort of airtime and marketing, ends up getting a little bit damaged by it because when people finally find it they don't see it for the gem that it is all the time
3: um i think it's really interesting that so many of these like classic uh movies or stories had some touchstone here to salt lake city which which i I don't think people associate stories like that with this place
0: we're going to get into more modern filmmaking that's taken place in Salt Lake, but first we're going to pause for another word from one of our fab sponsors.
1: privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true
4: Get emotional with me, Radi Devlukia, in my new podcast A Really Good Cry.
2: All right, so we're going to jump right
1: back in. Uh, And coming up, you get to hear me use the word crevasse, I think, in the wrong way when I'm talking about the film 127 Hours. So sorry for any of you uh, people that will not enjoy my geography wrongitude. That's another thing
0: about live shows is we're speaking live with no editing. People hear us say things that are flubbed in one way or another.
1: In more recent years, you guys have hosted a number of of pretty interesting things, some of which have gotten Oscar nods, uh, including 127 Hours, which I will confess I haven't seen because I don't think I can sit through it. Um, But the old granite furniture building in Sugar House was the soundstage for a lot of the work that Danny Boyle was doing here uh, with James Franco. And so, if you don't know, just in case you don't understand why I don't think I can get through it, this is the uh, story where. James Franco plays a hiker named Aaron Ralston who gets caught in a a crevasse, am I right? And he ends up having to cut off his own arm to escape. I mean...
3: Sugarhouse brought that to the world of cinema. (laughs) Uh,
1: So that's why I can't sit through that one. Uh, One day I will, just I haven't been ready yet. Do you want to talk about The Sandlot? Yeah,
3: sure. Uh, Another one that I think that we kind of hold here locally is really important to the film industry is The Sandlot. Um, it's probably one of the most favorite and time-tested films to have shot in Salt Lake City. Um, it was shot in 1993, and Salt Lake City at that time was probably just the easiest place in America to convert into that Americana, old-school feel of the 1960s. Um, they shot from one end of the city to the other. Um, the, the sandlot itself is located in the Rose Park neighborhood. They shot a lot of things at Liberty Park, which has a really interesting fascinating history that involves the assassination of president garfield um you know there's there's all kinds of weird history around here we know how you love your
1: garfield assassination
3: i do i do (laughs) it's such a funny story
1: (laughs) it's it's a laugh riot those assassinations uh another film that shot here that i will i will confess i'm not a fan I love okay. it. Lo- I love it a lot. Dumb and Dumber. It's just not my jam. Uh, no shade to anybody that loves it. Like the heart wants what it wants. It just it isn't my flavor of comedy. Uh, but it was directed by the Farrelly Brothers, and it is a fairly iconic film. I mean, everybody knows what this film is, and it does have some spectacularly talented people in it, just doing things that don't work for me. Uh, and they shot a lot in the Salt Lake City Airport, although that was before it went through a pretty big renovation. So if well, they're you,
3: they're doing that now.
1: Yeah. If you if you look at it. And then you look at the airport now, you it won't really jive you won't be like, "Oh, I know exactly where that is." Harry and Lloyd's apartment building was filmed downtown, so you would know this I don't know I only know the address, but I don't know it you know offhand it won't click for me, but it's at about uh two hundred south and third east, so just a few blocks from here, allegedly,
3: I'd have a parade
1: and walk over there uh And the scene where they went to the Snow Owl benefit was filmed in two different locations across the street from one another and about a block from here. So that's the Devereaux Mansion, which served as an exterior uh, for shooting. And the inside of the Union Pacific Depot is what they used for the interiors for that benefit.
3: Um, I think one of the funniest uh, contrasts is uh, East and West High School have both been used for drastically different movies. So West High... (laughs) West High School was the site of, uh, they shot a lot of SLC punk there.
1: I really love that movie.
3: And East High was where they shot the high school musical movies, which kind of plays into that East Side, West Side stereotype.
1: Well, and I think we've stumbled across the most hilarious Salt Lake City double feature of all time. I can't imagine they would draw the same audience, but it would be funny to watch each audience sit through the other film. Like, we're all in this together. Oh, whoa, this this punk film isn't for me. <laughs> like, <laughs>
3: um, there's been a lot of movies uh, shot here, though. Uh, Way of the Gun, uh, what, uh, which was Christopher McQuarrie starring uh, Benicio Toro and Ryan Phillippe. They shot around the streets here at night a lot because that movie was gritty and at night. Um, much of the TV miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand was shot here. And so there's still... I tried to get a list of some of the locations, but... Uh, I realize that uh, you could probably look that up on your own if you're interested.
1: There you go. Uh, you could start you could start this as a business, your own tour of filming locations in Salt Lake City. not, not interested. Or one of our enterprising listeners because that's that's no small undertaking. So that's kind of how important Salt Lake really is to the film and entertainment industry. So if anybody says it's not, you tell them, haha, yes, huh.
0: So one more time, I want to thank Brian for stepping in serving as Holly's extremely excellent co-host when I could not be there. That was extremely appreciated.
1: Uh, I'm also kind of sorry I couldn't be there in person just to hear it. Uh, but now it's preserved forever and I really also want to thank the fabulous audience member who came up to me after the show who worked on 127 Hours as a reptile wrangler and he told me that the movie was totally safe to watch and I feel bad because I did not get his name but he showed me all kinds of fabulous snake photos and pictures from the set and it was awesome and I really, really, really loved it so thank you, thank you
0: and if you want to hear more from Brian, you can find him all over the place. The book that we featured in our live show last October is A Children's Illustrated History of Presidential Assassination. His newest book, The Aeronaut, is an alternate history fiction spy thriller set in World War One. And you can also find him at BrianYoungFiction.com. That is Brian with a Y or on Twitter at SwankMotron. He's also been writing for our parent company's project, How Stuff Works Now, for a while, doing some ridiculous history pieces that we share on our Facebook and our Twitter from time to time.
1: Yeah, he's been doing an excellent job on those. And I also wanted to send a huge, huge thanks to Salt Lake Comic Con Fanex for having me out to the show. They made me feel incredibly welcomed. I really loved every single staff member I spoke with. They were all incredibly sweet and just really gracious and kind. And I absolutely fell in love with Salt Lake City. Uh, I think it's mentioned in the episode. I had never been there before and it was just amazing. I loved it so much. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. I cannot tell you enough how much I enjoyed myself. Do you also have some Lister mail? I do. Uh, I was out for a few days. I was, I was working, but I was teleworking for a couple days in a row. And when I came into my desk this morning, there was a massive pile of parcels full of amazing things. Uh, and one of them, we will talk about it is from our listener, Julie, and um, she included a letter with it. And she said, Dear Tracy and Holly, please accept these customized picture frames as a thank you gift for the many hours of enjoyment you have given me. I know you're busy, so I'll just provide a few comments via a bulleted list. Uh, she said, First, I can echo the fan who said when she went to Europe, she knew all kinds of stuff because of stuff you missed in history class. My daughter took me to London, Paris and Bath last summer as a thank you for her expensive college education. And I was well equipped because of your podcast. I saw the her." Home and Bath, and I knew all about them. I saw dresses by Worth and Madame Vionnet and Chaparelli's famous jacket with the butterfly buttons in the Musée des Arts Décoratifs. I saw strange, a strange building with a windmill and said, "Holy cow, that's the Moulin Rouge!" And I knew about it from the Joseph Huley episode, etc., etc. Uh, she was outraged when Tracy said she would likely get hate mail if she decided to have Lindy Hop at her wedding, and it made Julie so angry that she had to turn off the podcast and sit quietly for several minutes to simmer down.
0: Oh, hey, uh, <laughs> the wedding has happened now. We did not slash are not doing Lindy Hop, but we are having some swing dancing. Woo! That I mostly know, boiled down to it. Patrick not having time to learn how to Lindy Hop from scratch.
1: <laughs> yeah, it takes some effort. Uh, Julie goes on to say, I recently retired and I moved to the... uh Keweenaw Peninsula and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I actually know that area a little bit. Some of my family lives there. Uh this area is interesting and might be worth a podcast. And she talks a little bit about the history, so I'm gonna Keep that quiet in case we do one of those. And then uh she says, I'm a cautionary tale of what happens when a person spends most of their life with no creative outlet. A few years ago I invented a few friends to a craft tea, where in addition to cucumber sandwiches, I also set out materials for decoupage, penwork, mosaics mosaics, etc., for us to play with. Well, I got hooked. After that, all I wanted to do was wake make what my kids call mock mosaics, which is a misnomer because they really are mosaics, but I use paper instead of glass or ceramic tiles. I've made customized frames. Jewelry, Christmas ornaments, etc., for most of my family, but I am compelled to make more, hence these frames. Uh, thank you so much, Julie, because those frames are gorgeous. Uh, I literally got in, opened the package, took a picture, and sent Tracy the photo <laughs> on her phone so she could see it right away. It's so pretty. Um, it's extremely pretty. And we'll post it on social, but also if you wanted to check out more of Julie's designs, she has an Etsy store at jcarsondesigns.etsy.com. They are absolutely beautiful. Uh, I mean, I'm really blown away. Like, I've seen lots of decoupage and mosaic work. Over the years, but she really does some just absolutely beautiful. It has like an old world feel in some cases. There's uh, one picture frame she had on her shop that I saw that's uh, medieval cats and I'm just in love with it. So she does great work and she was so sweet to send us those frames. Mine has Queen Victoria in it. Tracy's has a lovely picture of her and her beloved. It's absolutely the coolest. So thank you. I'm always so honored. Anytime someone takes time out of their life to make us a thing. It's a huge honor to me. So uh, if you would like to email us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're on Facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at Pinterest.com slash history at com, and on Instagram at history. If you want to research a little bit related to what we talked about in today's episode, you can go to our parent site, how Stuff Works. type in the words filmmaking in the search bar, and you will get an assortment of articles, including one called How Film Festivals Work and another about How Film Restoration Works. Uh, if you would like to hang out with Tracy and me, you can do that at MistInHistory.com, which is our site, and you can look at our backlog of every episode that's ever happened long before Tracy and I were on the podcast, as well as show notes for any of the episode's that Tracy and I have worked on, as well as occasional blog posts, so we encourage you come and visit us at com and housestuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit housestuffworks.com.
4: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novela which is a fancy way of saying a A podcast.
0: podcast.